Hello and welcome to episode 96 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. For those of you who are listening for the first time, my name is Julian Carl and I'm the CEO and the co-founder of Synergen Group. I'm passionate about all things leadership and management, so passionate in fact that I decided to start a podcast about it and here we are closing in on the end of season two and my purpose for the podcast continues to be the same, to raise the standard of leadership. In today's show, I speak with David Pitch, who is the CEO of the Institute of Managers and Leaders and also the author slash curator of Leading Well, the seven attributes of a very successful leaders. And importantly, David is only the second member of the Synergen Two Times Club as we spoke about his leadership journey in episode 27 during season one. With 25 years experience across HR, sales and marketing, media and communications and fundraising sectors that have included FMCG, IT and finance and consulting, he has long held a deep-seated passion for sound and impactful leadership. David has a strong and proven track record in the core skills of leadership that includes setting strategy, defining culture and leading people. And he's also worked with both the state and federal government on a series of significant funding projects. David feels truly at home in complex leadership roles and in 2017, he authored the now best-selling book, Leadership Matters, Seven Skills of Very Successful Leaders, which was published by Major Street Publishing. The book draws on his own personal leadership philosophy, as well as the experience of great local and international leaders to tell a compelling and interesting leadership story. Now, during the course of the conversation, we explore the book in a lot of detail. I start off by asking David why did he decide to write or collate this book. We speak about the seven attributes of very successful leaders and how they impact each other. We discuss the link between this book and the first book in the series, and we finish the interview by talking about the dark side of leadership and get a Synergen exclusive where we hear about the third book in the series. So keep listening. As always, really like to hear your thoughts about the interview with David Pitch, CEO of the Institute of Managers and Leaders and author of Leading Well, The Seven Attributes of Very Successful Leaders. Happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian returns in 2019 with weekly conversations with leaders and authors from Australia and around the world, giving you the opportunity to share in their journey and learn from their expertise and knowledge. Julian also shares some of the tools and techniques he uses as a leader, mentor and facilitator, helping you to build your leadership capability and improve your confidence as a leader. Well, welcome back to the, the Synergen Group podcast, David. You actually join a very illustrious group called the Synergen Two-Timers Club. There is only now you and Toby Hall, who is the group's uh, CEO of St. Vincent's Health Australia, that are in this illustrious club. So congratulations. Great. Fantastic. I don't know whether that um, smacks of desperation on your part or, or the fact that I'm an interesting person to interview, but I'll take the second one, I think, Julian. Thank you. Yeah, take the second one, definitely. So for the listeners who haven't yet had a chance to uh, listen to our, when we had a chat in season one, can you just give a little bit of a a background on who is David Pitch? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I'm the uh, chief exec of the Institute of Managers and Leaders Australia and New Zealand. And um, that is, uh, so IML for short, is the um, representative body for membership body for managers and leaders in Australia and now in New Zealand. Um, We merged with the New Zealand Institute of Management um, at the back end of last year. And uh, we now um, have round about 12,000 members who, um, and those are both individual members and corporate members who 
um, are you know have joined the institute and we represent that body of membership and we advocate for sound management and leadership practice and um, that that is a very broad um, advocacy position and I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about that today Julian but essentially we um, we are the professional body that represents managers and leaders and uh, there are hundreds and thousands of managers and leaders in, in Australia and New Zealand and there are even more um, uh, people who aspire to be managers and leaders because you know there's so many people at our universities and and colleges that want to be managers and leaders of the future and we are the body that those people uh, look to and join for um, for expertise for leadership development and for a whole host of other services that we offer that be that we believe lie at the heart of good management. So we are here to uh, talk about the second book that you have uh, co-authored and collated called Leading Well. Uh, why did you decide to put this book together? Oh, well, um, yes, yeah, a, a great question. And that's what we're, we're going to talk about. And um, we could talk about um, the book for, for an awfully long time because it goes into, um, it looks at the seven attributes that we believe at the Institute lie at the heart of good management and leadership. And um, we wrote the second book, really, um, because we'd written the first book, um, which sounds um, a, a little bit like, uh, you know, an arduous journey, an arduous explanation, but it's very simple. Um, we believe at the Institute that leadership and good leadership is, um, is a unique combination of um, what we call inspiration and perspiration. And the first book, which was um, Leadership Matters, was looking at the seven skills of leadership. And that was really the perspiration, the hard work of leadership. And those seven skills that we spoke about on your previous podcast, and um, hopefully if we write a third book, I might even get invited back a third time. Um, but, but we, in the first book, we looked at skills. We looked at the things that leaders need to do um, to perform and, and do well. And um, I have to say that when we wrote the first book, we always knew that there was a second book coming. Um, now, we didn't know that we'd write the second book because, of course, that all depended on success of the first book. But the first book really did resonate with people and um, um, it did very, very well. And uh, we sold an awful lot of copies through Major Street, our, our publisher down in Melbourne. And um, on the back of that, we were offered um, a publishing deal, if you like, um, for our second book. But we'd always known that leadership was both a combination of how lead, what leaders do and how leaders are or who leaders are. And it's that idea of inspiration and perspiration. And this book, um, Leading Well, The Seven Attributes of Very Successful Leaders, is looking at those personality traits, if you like, or those attributes that leaders must have to lead well and to be good leaders. And um, that was no small task because um, we decided that we would stick with seven and um, narrowing it down to seven attributes uh, for something as complex as good leadership was, was a very difficult process. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine it, it would be because trying to dis distill all the all the thinking that's out there down into a, a, a nice, neat number can often be a challenge, can't it? 
Well, in, in, in actual fact, it was, um, it, it was more of a challenge than you can possibly imagine because um, what we decided to do, um, we decided to go out to our membership. So I, I've said that we have around about 12,000 individual and corporate members. And um, we thought that to have some kind of efficacy and, and, and some validity, rather than it just being the opinion of the Institute, we should get the opinion of our members. Um, and so I asked my research team to um, survey our members and to ask our members who are, you know, representative of managers and leaders, as I've already said, what they believe the top seven attributes or the seven most important attributes of good leadership are. And um, it was interesting that uh, my leadership team came, uh, sorry, my, my research team came back to me and they said, well, we've, we've got a pool of 50 attributes that we're going to ask people um, to choose from. So, so, so you know, th there, there, are, there are definitely uh, 50 at least, there are 50 things that you could hang your hat on and say, look, a leader needs some aspect of this to lead well. And we were having to distill down to seven. Now, as it happens, um, of those 50, about eight, um, eight or nine actually, did come up time and time again. And um, so, so our job was difficult at first, but when we got the responses back from our membership, um, it was just pity that we couldn't, um, you know, stretch to, to, to eight or nine in the book, but we couldn't. So we went with the top seven. So the seven attributes that are in the book are in fact the seven that our members said were the top attributes of leadership. And um, we decided to write about those. So whatever those seven were, those top seven, we committed to write about. And um, there were a couple missing that I thought, wow, I, I was surprised that that one didn't appear. Um, but no, we ended up with the seven and um, we, we stuck to our guns. And in actual fact, the order of the attributes in the book was the order of importance that our members uh, attribute, attributed to the attributes. Um, so they are in the order that they got voted by our members. And I think that says something about, about leadership today, which people in the, will probably get onto in this podcast. I'm curious, what, what, what are a couple that didn't make the top seven that you thought uh, right, might have? Okay. Oh, well, interestingly, um, one that I was absolutely hoping personally, and I, um, by the way, so just so, just so your listeners know, um, I am also a member of my own institute, of course, and I only got one vote, um, which is a pity, really, because <laughs> I, the chief exec should always get more than one vote. But no, I only got one vote. So um, uh, there were a couple of there were a couple of attributes, one in particular that I I voted for that didn't make the cut, but only just. So and that is passion. Um, passion. Um, I personally believe that passion plays an incredibly big role, important role, um, in leadership. Having said that. Um, uh, the, the, the trouble with these kind of things, of course, is that there's connectivity between um, between um, attributes. And the other problem is, um, and it's very difficult to get over this kind of problem, but um, one person's passion is another person's ability to inspire, for example. An ability to inspire did make the cut. It's actually the fourth um, attribute and the fourth chapter of the book. So in one sense, there is a bit of crossover between some of the attributes. But, but anyway, to answer your question direct, I thought that passion might make it and passion came in number eight or number nine, I seem to remember, um, and didn't make the cut. But having said that, uh, to compensate ability to inspire did. 
Well, well maybe, maybe that's the topic for the third book. Yeah, it could be. Actually, um, perhaps towards the end of um, towards the end of, of this interview, I might I might tell you where we go from here because we are currently looking at what I think is a really interesting topic for a third book, and um, it's perhaps something that we could explore. And maybe uh, your listeners uh, might have a view when I disclose um, what I think the topic for a third book might be. Okay. All right. I'll make a note. I'm not going to, I'm not going to leave that one alone. I want to get to the, uh, what, what's the hot gossip. So at a very high level, what, what are these uh, seven attributes that the members decided were the top seven? Yeah, sure. Well, um, so the seven attributes and the seven chapters of um, leading well um, are respect. And uh, there you go. So respect was, was the number one attribute. And um, that, that came as somewhat of a surprise to me, and perhaps we'll come back to why that, was a, why, why that came as a surprise a bit later. So respect, integrity, emotional intelligence, or, or EQ, as it's called these days, ability to inspire, as I, as I previously mentioned, authenticity, self-awareness, and then number seven, coming in at number seven, was decisiveness. So respect, integrity, emotional intelligence, the ability to inspire, authenticity, self-awareness, and decisiveness. Those are the seven chapters of the book. And those were the seven attributes that our membership said lie at the heart of sound leadership practice. It's a really interesting list when I think about it and when I compare it to a lot of the the stuff which appears on my LinkedIn feed and everywhere else. So. I'm curious to get your, your thoughts on each of the seven. Why, why do you think respect in Australia and New Zealand is obviously such this, this, this number one attribute? So let's just be very clear. Um, I am, um, I'm credited as, as being the author of, of the book, and that's um, very humbling and, and all of that kind of stuff. It's also not true. Um, which makes it even more humbling and, and slightly embarrassing. Um, I'm definitely not the author of the book. I am much more the editor. Of the book. So I did write the respect chapter, and um, I wrote that in conjunction with um, one of our members, Jamie Getwood, um, down in uh, down in South Australia. Um, and then I edited the rest of the book, and I did add um, a flavour of the institute through the book. Um, but in actual fact. We selected members based on their experience and their interest and, and their academic background in many cases or their leadership experience. Um, but I chose to write the respect chapter. And I did that because I was incredibly surprised that respect was even included in the list. Um, had you asked me at the beginning when we sent out the 50 attributes, I, I would have passed right over respect. Having said that, once I started to do my research for writing the chapter, and once I met with Jamie, who I asked to write the chapter with me, um, and I will just say one thing about Jamie Getgood. So he was voted, uh, nominated and voted as our leader of the year um, back in 2017. But he was the Institute's leader of the year, and he was the head of HR at the Holden factory down in South Australia that was closed down. And um, when you speak to Jamie and you hear his story and you, talk, and you talk to him directly about the respect that he both had and received through the close down of the Holden factory, um, 
you, you realize why he was asked to write, to co-author the Respect chapter. And um, really, in all honesty, the most interesting part of the Respect chapter is his um, definition of respect and his story about the respect that he showed towards the staff during the, the very difficult closing of the Holden factory. Um, and, and I would say, for anybody um, wishing to grab the book, um, that uh, his take on respect is, is far more expert than mine. And um, I would encourage people to read his part of the respect chapter. Uh, so, so the question you asked is, why do I think respect was, was the first um, attribute, and the most popular attribute? I think it's very simple. I think that there's almost a complete breakdown of respect in, um, in leadership at the moment. I think, um, I think for some reason, we, we've got ourselves into this mess of thinking that everybody has to agree with us. And I think that shows a complete lack of this thing called respect. And I think, um, I think respect is viewed as one of those, tends to be viewed these days as one of those old fashioned attributes that no one needs to have anymore. And I think the fact that it came up as our number one attribute says something about the state of leadership today. And we define respect in the book as this ability that managers and leaders need to have and potentially used to have of believing that different opinions are okay. It's okay to disagree with people. And that seems to have got lost these days. I think it's got lost at a political level. I think there's so much animosity um, where there used to be acceptance. It used to be okay for two people to hold different opinions and you used to be able to debate them and kind of shake hands and walk away and be friends. I think these days there's so much polarization of opinion that it's almost the end of respect. And I think what our members were saying when they said that respect was important was we need to bring that back into the conversation. Difference is okay. You, you can disagree with each other without falling out about it, without wanting to sound too kind of crude about it. You don't have to fall out. You can have a difference of opinion. And I think that's been lost. And I think, I think um, there's a little bit of re a reflection on political leadership there where everything seems to be polarized, you know, left and right or Brexit, non-Brexit, Trump, non-Trump. You know, everything seems to be black and white. Um, there doesn't seem to be too much gray. And I think what this, this chapter is saying, if, we, if there's a kind of slogan to this chapter is gray's okay. It's okay for people to disagree. You can be friends and disagree. And that's where respect comes in. You don't always have to be right. Difference of, differences of opinion are okay. Do you think social media has played a part in this? I absolutely do. I absolutely do. I think, um, uh, by the way, let, let's not, um, I definitely don't want to um, be down, if you like, on social media because um, I'm a big user of social media. The Institute uses social media. And, um, but I do think there is, there is potentially a lack of, um, I, I do think that social media can potentially lead to um, a lack of critical debate and a lack of um, quality discussion about topics. 
And where there's no critical debate and no quality discussion, um, conflict tends to occur much more easily because opinions are given in sound bites in 140 characters or in a picture or some or comments under a picture. And the respect chapter is talking about this ability that managers and need, leaders need to have to take in other people's opinions, to accept that other people have different opinions and you don't necessarily have to change their mind. It's not about, you know, you can, you can agree to disagree. And then where the chapter goes to is the idea that out of respect comes diversity and inclusion. And this idea that, um, for, for the readers, for, for your listeners that don't know me, you know, I'm an I'm a oldish white bloke from Manchester in England. <laughs> um, if my workplace was full of oldish white blokes from England, it would be a very dull place to work. Um, and it would not be representative of our clients, of our customers, of our constituency, of our, that dreadful word, stakeholders. And diversity and inclusion is about a difference of opinion and acknowledging that difference is good. And that, we believe, is the heart of respect. It's this idea that you can be different and that's okay. And um, we talk a little bit in the, in the chapter about, um, you know, the, the same-sex marriage debate. So the Institute took a position on the same-sex marriage debate that not everybody agreed with, and that's okay. It's okay to take a position and not fall out about it. And that's what we believe lies at the heart of respect, that it's okay to disagree. The second attribute being integrity, it's almost as though I see those two being quite closely linked. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think um, the beauty of the book and the beauty of um, how the book kind of panned out was that when you put the attributes together, you realize actually that they're all very, very nicely linked. And what you end up with is a picture of leadership. It's absolutely fascinating that when you actually read the book and you read the linkages between the book and you bear in mind that the book was written by, the chapters of the book were, were written by different people who were in, um, in most cases, in completely different locations around the country. And some, some people wrote their chapters while they were overseas traveling or whatever. Um, and the people didn't communicate with each other, which is absolutely fascinating because when you actually read the book as a whole, you realize the interconnectivity between these things. So you're absolutely right. You know, respect and integrity are so closely linked. And there's other, there's other of the attributes that we'll get to. If you look at authenticity and self-awareness, very, very linked. And... And all, almost, you can't have one without the other, but integrity is about this idea of doing the right thing and listening to your inner voice and your, 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 you know, your true self and your center and your core and doing the right thing. And it's about asking yourself that question. If what I do or, or, or if what I am about to do or have just done were to be posted on Facebook. Um, back in the day, of course, it used to be, you know, if it was on the front page of the Times newspaper or the Sydney Morning Herald or The Age. But these days, let's say, you know, if it was, if it was to be posted on Facebook, 
Would my head be held high? Would I hold my head high and say, that's the right thing to do? And, it, and interestingly, Julian, you know, the, the question is this. If you look at things like the Banking Royal Commission, you know, the, the investigation into the Catholic Church, all of these kind of things, would some of those players, and I, I use that word both, 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 I use that word quite ironically, don't I? Um, would those people stand by their actions? Were those actions to have a spotlight shone on them? And the answer in almost all of those cases is no. And, and that's what integrity is about. It's about analyzing your behavior and your actions and your leadership, because we're talking about leadership here, Anal analyzing your leadership decisions and saying, if these decisions were thrown onto the boardroom table or these actions were thrown onto the boardroom table or thrown into an all staff meeting, would I stand by them? And that is a question that I think that managers and leaders, but by the way, that's a question that many, manage, many, many, many managers and leaders ask themselves every day and challenge themselves every day with, and some don't. And to those that don't, I say, you need to start doing that. And, and I think that, that, that was the integrity question. It's a, it's a very, um, it, it's a, there's some very challenging parts of that chapter because it's about that question. If a light was shone on your behavior, would you do the same thing? It's a very powerful question. It is. It is. And, you know, we, we can all look back, and I'm sure your listeners are sitting there thinking not only about their own decisions and behavior. And, and by the way, we all, we, we should all, I'm not, I don't exclude myself from this. I, I, we all should ask these questions. And we, we should ask this, these questions every day. We should be much more reflective. We should, we should sit down much more, make time in our day to sit down and ask that very, very simple question. If I was in the same position that I was just in, would I make the same decision again? And I think much of management and leadership these days is, you know, we, we, we do something, we make a decision, then we move on to the next thing. There isn't a lot of reflection. And we at the Institute believe that reflection lies at the heart of good management and leadership. And, and reflection is that process of integrity. So, so for example, um, I said I could talk a lot, and I do get the impression I'm talking a lot, but I suppose I'm the person being interviewed, aren't I? Um, <laughs> at the heart, <laughs> one of the things that the, the Institute offers is the Chartered Manager designation. So for the first time in Australia, you can become a Chartered Manager. You can charter your management and leadership competence and capability. Now, now, why am I bringing that up with, with the question of integrity? Well, at the heart of becoming a chartered manager, and I'm, this is quite real in my life at the moment because I've just been through the chartered process and I've just become a chartered manager myself. Um, at the heart of the chartered process for management and leadership is a process of reflection. So actually, when you go through the application process and you go through a very detailed interview, you are constantly asked, what did you do? And of course, you, you know, most... most um, designation processes will ask that question what did you do what have you done very few of them then ask if you had your time again would you do the same thing again have you reflected on what you did and would you do it again and that is a very challenging question because most of us can tell our personal story about management and leadership and say you know i was in this management position and i made this decision 
but very few, very few people are challenged. Well, now with the benefit of hindsight and the benefit of reflection and time, would you do the same thing again? And um, that, by the way, is why I think that the chartered designation is so powerful because it's that question. And that is what lies at the, at the heart of integrity. The third attribute, emotional intelligence, seems to be a hot topic at the moment. Yeah, it is a hot topic. Yeah, you, I mean, you can go into a, you can go into a bookshop and there's, um, there's hundreds of books on emotional intelligence and, and um, the vast majority are very good. And um, I think EQ, emotional intelligence, is, is, um, is, is the hottest topic, one of the hottest topics in leadership at the moment. Uh, by the way, I think there's a, there's a hotter topic coming with one of the other chapters, which I'll, which I'll definitely talk about. But yeah, definitely emotional intelligence. That's, this, is a, this is about this, um, this ability that managers and leaders have, need to have, to read situations and to read people and to get for want of a better phrase, to get onto other people's wavelengths. And um, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that if, an, uh, so it, it, there's, there's, it didn't come as any surprise to me that emotional intelligence was part of this. In actual fact, I thought it would be the first or second attribute. And I'm actually quite thankful that respect and integrity beat emotional intelligence, because I think that says something about our managers and, and leaders and our members. Um, because emotional intelligence was always going to be there. But, but there's absolutely no doubt that these days, managers and leaders must have a level of emotional intelligence that is far beyond that that they needed in the past. And that, again, is to do with um, the fact that these days, workforces are so diverse and they contain, you know, the Gen Ys and Millennials and Gen X. And I think the latest one is Gen Z. And a manager needs to be able, or a leader, a management leader needs to be able to not only communicate with that, that wide variety of people from different cultures and backgrounds and ethnicities and sexualities and all of those kind of things, but they have to understand themselves and understand those people. Because I think there's a realization, Julian, that people bring their whole self to work. And that is much more the case than it once was and that means that the manager is a, you know a mentor a counselor you know a leader um, and it's that ability to change your hat depending on who you're talking to it's just so important that managers and leaders can do that and, and if, if they can't then there's going to be high staff turnover there's going to be high levels of stress and there's going to be potentially chaos in an organization and in a team. So EQ is right up there as an essential attribute of management and leadership. Mm -hmm. I, I, I thought the fourth attribute, ability to inspire was an interesting one because how do you measure someone's ability to inspire? Mm. Yes, it was, it, was, it was a really tough one. I was, uh, I was really quite glad I didn't have to write this chapter. Um, <laughs> but you see, I think what we, what we concluded and the reason why that's there, and, and I, think it, I think there are a number, of other, a number of other attributes that were swept up by this ability to inspire. And um, I mentioned passion before, and I think that 
I think that got swept up into that. Um, I think what this shows, and, and the reason why this attribute made the list and made it to number four, is that there is a sense these days that people want more than um, what I would call functional or transactional management. They, people want a strategy and they want a vision and they want a purpose for an organization. And they want the, or for a department or for a team. Um, and, and people want more from their managers and leaders. They want to know why an organization exists, what the organization's deep-seated goals are, and where the organization's going. Fundamentally, I think people want to be on a journey with an organization or with a manager, or, and with a manager and a leader. And that's what this chapter is about. It's about the ability for, um, for the manager and the leader to communicate the strategy, to communicate the vision, and to say to the organization, the staff, the team, the department, we're going on that journey. So it's, I think it's this idea of purpose that Simon Sinek talks about. And you know, his, his books start with why it is, is exactly what this is about. And I think people are looking for something other, more and more people are looking for something other than just going into work at nine o'clock, leaving at five o'clock. Work has to be something more than that. And I think, I think, and by the way, I don't think this is necessarily about people, managers and leaders being extrovert. I think, I think, that's, a, I think that's a bit of a myth that you have to be able to stand up on stage and do the rah-rah and get your whole team motivated and do your high fives. I don't think that's what this is about. This is about the ability to communicate a vision and, a bus and, 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 and a, well, you, you can do that on a one-on-one -on -one basis. You can do that however you do that. That's what people are looking for. They're looking to be led by their leaders. And I think this is this ability that people need or people want to go on a journey and this is about sharing that journey communicating regularly and so many leaders or managers these days don't do that they don't sell the purpose they don't tell the organization what the journey is that they're going on and they don't take them with them on that journey and again it's not about standing at the front of a conference and you know getting everyone to stand up and, and, and do a bit of a rah-rah talk. It's something much deeper than that. It's about purpose in an organisation. Do, do you think the reason why a lot of leaders don't do that is they're probably not necessarily sure about what the purpose is of the organisation or it hasn't been filtered right. down to them? Oh, I think it's, I think that's absolutely right. I think, I think, um, I think there's a fear um, that there, there is often a fear in an organization um, because, because managers at a, at a line manager or a department manager level don't feel empowered by those above them. Or, um, and I think, you know, in, in some organizations, this comes right from the very top. And those really good um, leaders recognize that and they have communication plans in place and they share the success stories and they share the strategy and they share the vision of the organization. And again, I, I will reiterate, this isn't just about um, extroverted people. This is about putting processes in place 
putting communication strategies in place, putting celebration strategies in place. So you take your organization on a journey with you and you filter down your vision, your strategy, your successes, or the successes of the organization, not, not your successes, but the success of the business and the purpose of the business. And I don't think enough organizations, be they big or small, think that through and think that's important. And I think that leaves a lot of managers and leaders at the lower levels, for want of a better phrase, um, it, it, both confused or not knowing or in fear. I think that's absolutely right. I, I was interested about the fifth attribute, authenticity. And the reason I'm interested in it is leaders that um, others would say are not authentic would probably argue that they are being authentic. So I find this a, a very interesting one to explore because ha, how do you demonstrate it if you if you mm. are being authentic but the people around you for whatever reason think you're not? Well, do you know what? I think you've you've um, it's almost as if we've primed each other, but we definitely haven't. Um, so I don't think the fifth attribute, authenticity, can be considered without the sixth attribute, that's self-awareness. I think they. Um, they're almost one chapter. It's almost 5A and 5B. And um, there, there is a problem, I believe, with authenticity um, that is solved by self-awareness. And it's that pro the problem, you, you've identified the problem, um, Julian, and I'll, 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 express it, I'll express it in a, perhaps in a slightly different way. It's this. Um, authenticity is about showing your true self and bringing your true self um, to, to work in this case, because we're talking about the work environment and management, management and leadership here. Um, authenticity is about being real, being true, showing yourself. And, um, and that, that, that has to be a good thing. It, it isn't good enough these days to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm work Dave and I leave, I leave um, family Dave at home because there's a merging of work and family at the moment, you know, and, you know, the idea of the nine to five day is gone and we bring our whole self to work and I just as we take work home so that there has to be a showing of self now the problem is with authenticity is a people don't know whether you're being authentic and b if you're not self-aware you can be authentically bad so the, the problem with authenticity is without self-awareness it's a bit of a cul-de-sac because you can get stuck in it so for example you could be um, you could be pretty nasty and, 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 and horrible at work. And you can turn around and say, well, I'm just being myself. I'm being authentic. And that's not good enough, of course. It's not good enough to keep saying, well, I'm just being myself, if the self that you're being isn't very nice. And that's the problem with authenticity. The problem is solved by self-awareness because self-awareness is a journey of improvement and self-improvement. And self-awareness is about knowing yourself and you can only get to know yourself if you um, very crudely ask other people what they think so what we believe at the institute is you absolutely have to be both authentic and on a journey of self-awareness and that journey of self-awareness is about feedback and applying the feedback and improving yourself based on the feedback so it's not good enough to simply say well, I'm just being authentic. If what people are saying about you is that you're rude and you're, you're a bully and you're all of those kind of bad things, you have to then 
go through a process of self-awareness and improve. And that's when true authenticity happens, when you are authentic and self-aware. So I think you're absolutely right. So, you know, you can do lots and lots of things in an organization to show that you're being an authentic leader. You know, you can socialize a little bit more with your staff. So one of the things I do, for example, as a leader, and I'll give a one very small example here, is that every year um, I invite my leadership team round to my house for dinner. So um, we call it um, we call it cooking with the CEO, and they invite the team round and they meet my family, they meet my kids, and my kids and my wife sit down for dinner with us, and my eight members of the leadership team come round for dinner. And by the way, I do cook and it's not particularly great, um, but I do my best and. I show a little bit of myself. So they see my family life kind of warts and all, you know, my, my five-year-olds and my nine-year-old are running around like crazy and um, getting the karaoke machine out and all that. I think there are ways that you can show your true self to an organization and to, to the people that you work with and for, but you have to be on a journey of self-awareness because you have to be asking people what they think of you. And then you have to be willing and open to change based on what people say they think of you. Do you think with the self-awareness that more leaders should potentially undertake some form of personal development type programs? Because I've always found that fascinating that the people that I work with professionally, quite often they're happy to undertake professional development programs. But as soon as you ask them about personal development, there seems to be this uh, stigma that oh no no that's not for me. Well, actually, I'm going to I'm going to go one step further than that. I think that I think that the 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 line between professional development and personal development has become is becoming more and more blurred. So I think that, and we at the institute think, Julian, that um, self awareness is the next frontier of leadership development. Um, so I, I said that um, EQ was the in thing at the moment. And, and I think EQ and emotional intelligence will stay as something that's incredibly important for managers and leaders. But actually, um, the, the next, the rising area of leadership development is around self-awareness. And I think we're seeing a blurring of this thing called professional development um, and yes, what you describe as personal development. So I'll give you an example. Uh, we, we offer two um, leadership development programs at the Institute. Um, one is called Foundations of Intentional Leadership, and that's aimed at emerging leaders. And the other is called Accelerate, and that's aimed at uh, uh, what people would call middle managers. We call them managers of managers. Um, you know, the vast majority of managers, people like myself, you know, and um, both of those leadership development programs have self-awareness tools and self-awareness processes and self-awareness components that are, that are aimed at personal development it, it included in them. And um, so both of them have a tool that we own called IML 360. And IML 360 is a tool that asks everybody, both work colleagues and associates of people, it could be family members and things like that, what they think of the person. 
And we, we've embedded those into our two programs, into our foundations of intentional leadership, program aimed at emerging leaders, and into our Accelerate program. So you're absolutely right. We believe there's a blurring of personal development and professional development. And again, that comes back to authenticity. You know, that you, there isn't a difference really, or shouldn't be a difference. If you're being an authentic leader, there should be no difference really between you in your leadership position, you know, me sitting now in the head office of IML and me when I go home, I'm, I am the same person. I'm, the, the, the skills that I learn and, 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 and display at home in my family are exactly the same things that I, warts and all, and for better or worse, are the same as I demonstrate here in the office. Mm. And I think, I think that's incredibly important. We're not, we don't walk out of the office and suddenly put on a different hat. And we, th that used to be a, a way of thinking, but it's just not true. Like we're not two different people. It's not Jackal and Hyde, you know, we're the same person as we are in, in the office as we are at home. And this, the final attribute, decisiveness. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, I didn't, uh, I was very surprised that decisiveness came up, but again, I think, I think this links to some of the other, some of the conversations, parts of this conversation that we've already had. I think, I think people are hungry for decisions. And I think people are looking to, for leaders to, I mean, look, I, you can tell from my accent, of course, and I've mentioned I'm from Manchester. Um, so so um, actually, interestingly, I've, I've lived almost exactly half my life in Australia now and the other half in England. I, I can't think of a better example of a lack of decisiveness than the whole Brexit thing. You know, people are looking to leaders to make a decision. And that, that, that's at a very macro level, you know, the Brexit just, it seems to be one of those things that no one can make a decision about. But I don't think that's too dissimilar for what happens in many teams and many workplaces. I think organizations are beset by indecision. And I think people are looking for managers and leaders to make a decision and to communicate that decision and communicate the logic to that decision and of course, the most important part of decisiveness is the research that managers and leaders should do and have to do before they make a decision. The consultation, the listening, the taking in, the research. And I think in so many examples and so many workplaces, that process doesn't happen and decisions are not made. And more importantly, so many managers and leaders don't recognize that their primary role is to set other people up to make decisions. And I think that, is, that, that point gets so lost in management and leadership that, that so I'll give you an example. My role, my role as the head of IML is to set my team up and to set the environment up so that my team can make decisions because I employ my staff to make decisions and therefore, I should make sure that the organization is set up and structured so that my team make the best decisions possible on behalf of the organization. And so many managers and leaders don't recognize that their role is not only to be decisive themselves, but to set other people up to make the right decision. And um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I make my, I know myself relatively well and I make my very best decisions um, between six o'clock in the morning and 11 o'clock in the morning. 
And that's because I get up at four o'clock every morning. Uh, by the way, the flip side of that, of course, is I go to bed very early at night, but I, I'm a marathon runner, so I get up quite early and I go for a run. But I'm actually at my peak decision-making between six o'clock and 11 o'clock, not, not in the afternoon. I'm, 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 not, I'm just not very good after two o'clock. So we've only got another 10 minutes and then I start, <laughs> and then I start tailing <laughs> off. <laughs> um, but that, that's an absolute fact. I'm just not, a very, I'm not very good in the afternoon because I'm tired and I'm, I know my decision-making um, zone. Um, this is the challenge I have for people. Do you understand when your managers and leaders make the best decisions, make their best decisions? And have you structured your workplace and your team and your organization to get the optimum decision-making capability out of your people? And if you haven't, why haven't you? Because isn't your job as a manager and a leader to understand your team and to allow them to make the right decisions? And that's a very challenging, we should challenge ourselves with that. And, you know, for example, if, if you know that your marketing manager doesn't make good decisions in the afternoon because, you know, she's had a baby and she's been up all night or whatever, are you setting your organization up to allow her to make the best decisions that she can for the organization? And if not, why not? And I think that's what that chapter is about. It's about not only making decisions yourself, but setting your organization up for optimum decision making. It's very challenging. I think it's, it's, it's one of those things which seems to have been more and more apparent in the work we do that, that people are, are not seeing decisions being made and that True. tends to frustrate them even more than a bad decision being made. Yeah, I think, I think actually um, I, I would put lack of decision-making and poor decision-making absolutely on a par. Um, uh, you know, uh, p- poor decision-making in an organization can obviously have a very detrimental effect on a team, on, on a business, on, a dis- on, you know, on, on an organization, but so can a lack of decision-making. Inertia um, is, a, is a terrible state for an organization, a team, a department to be in. We hear it constantly in the Institute. You know, my, my boss won't make a decision. There's no decisions happening. And um, that leads people to leave organizations and, when people leave organizations, there's disruption and, and not, not to mention the investment that we put in people or we should put in people. And so, no, I absolutely agree. A lack of decision making. And, and by the way, when I, when I saw decisiveness come up, um, Julian, I was, I was surprised. Um, I suddenly realized why it was there because there's such a lack of decision making in organizations. So we've got this checklist of seven attributes. Here. And I imagine as, as leaders read the book, they're, they're probably going to be asking themselves, well, how, how do I know if I have these? Well, um, the good thing about the book is uh, it's a practical guide. So there are lists and challenges and re- reflective processes throughout the book. Um, however, having said all of that, um, I think it's very easy as a manager and a leader um, to think you have them. Um, and I think this then... Everything, in my view, comes back to the sixth chapter, and that is self-awareness. So you can think that you have respect, and you can think that you're the most decisive manager, but how self-aware are you? So my view and the view of the Institute is that you have to be on a journey of reflection and a journey of self-awareness. And therefore, you have to be, at a very base level, you have to be asking 
the people around you, the people above you and the people below you, where you fit on the, man on the sound management and leadership scale, if you like. So essentially, the very first thing that I would encourage your listeners to do is implement 360-degree feedback in your organization. And in, in addition to that, you can, you can implement tailored 360-degree feedback. So you're specifically asking around some of these attributes. Am I a respectful leader? Do, I, do you believe I have integrity? Let's, the more managers and leaders ask those questions, and the more they get their feet, this feedback, and the more they then change their behavior and their approach based on that feedback, the better management and leadership will be in Australia and New Zealand as a whole. But my advice is implement 360 degree feedback, um, read around the topic, um, put, well, join the Institute, of course, um, go on to our management and leadership um, software tool which is called leadership direct and you can put in learning journeys you can learn about these attributes and you can learn about yourself that's what we would wholeheartedly recommend at the start of the conversation you gave you teased me you said <laughs> i did to share something about this third book well we've reached that point yeah. well you know um the one thing i find about management and leadership is um there's uh, many of the books that are, that are uh, and much of the conversation about management and leadership um, is quite is quite general, and uh, it tends to be quite positive in the sense that um, they t a, a lot of the conversation is around what leaders should do. Um, what we're thinking of doing is looking at the dark side of leadership. And we're thinking of pulling out those typical behaviors that we all see in management and leadership, ma managers and leaders. And we're thinking of picking it apart and questioning it and asking why do managers and leaders do these things? So, so rather than these attributes and the skills that we've looked at and said, you need these, what we're thinking of doing is taking four or five things and saying, so many managers and leaders do these things and they're terrible. Why are managers and leaders doing that? Why do they do these things? So we're, look, we're thinking of looking at the dark side of management and leadership because there must be something, there must be something driving managers and leaders. If you take bullying, bullying is a classic example. Um, what is it, why is it that so many managers and leaders are accused of bullying behavior? What, what is it? What, what, there must be something that is driving these managers and leaders to be labeled as bullies and to do certain things. And I think that, um, it, by the way, it's a very tricky book to write that because, of course, you've got, to, <laughs> you've got to try and find people who are willing to talk it through. Um, but if anybody can do that, I think the Institute can because we have so many members and we have such a base, you know, such a broad base of members. So we're thinking of looking at the dark side of leadership. What, what do you think? I think it's a great title. The dark side of leadership. Now that I've shared it on your podcast, I might have to get my legal team to trademark. <laughs> well, I can just imagine that. I can imagine at the bookshelf, the dark side of leadership. Everyone's going to go and grab it straight away. You know, you you read about actions of of, of managers, and you kind of slap your head and think, "What on earth were they thinking?" And yet. 
And yet the next week you read that someone else has done exactly the same thing and you think, what on earth? Like, why? Well, there must be something that drives poor behavior, just as there are so many good things that drive good behavior, you know. And I, and I, I, think, I think it's a, it's a topic that's not been researched and written about enough. I think it has from a kind of, um, you know, a story perspective. There have been story, there have been um, autobiographies, sorry, biographies written about managers that have, managers and leaders that have monumentally failed, but not necessarily about the specific behavior that they've demonstrated. It's more about the person. I don't want to necessarily look at the person. I don't really care about that. What I care about is the behavior. What is it about a specific bit of behavior? Take bullying, for example. And why do so many managers and leaders slip into bullying behavior or micromanaging behavior or discriminatory behavior? Why? Why is that happening? Well, if I think about all the books that I've read on leadership, all the authors that I've interviewed, and the common thread they have is that generally they're all looking at, well, if you try this tool, you'll be a better leader. And if you try this, you'll do this. I think what you're considering in doing the reverse and that is trying to understand why the negative behaviors exist would be very, very powerful, very, very challenging. Like you said, but very, very powerful. And you've got me thinking now about why that question of why do some of these people do things the way they do them? Yeah. And I think, I think obviously what we would want to do is, is look at how managers and leaders can avoid slipping into the trap of X, you know, uh, because of course, you know, I don't, I don't want to just write a book about examples of bullying. I want to try to pick it apart so I can then say, well, actually you can think about these things before you slip down that path, you know? So, it, so there has to be, um, <laughs> that has to be light at the end of the tunnel. It has to be a, um, it has to be, it has to be a hopeful book. Otherwise, quite frankly, Julian, we'll all get very depressed by it because there's so many examples of poor management and leadership, just as there are examples of good management and leadership, of course. Um, but, but I wouldn't mind trying to pick it apart so that um, we can help people avoid the pitfalls, you know. And I don't think it's good enough anymore to say, you know, just don't do it because so many people do it that there must be something driving people and there must be something there must be there must come a point a crossroads where people take the wrong the wrong you know branch the wrong fork of the road and if we can assist people as an institute not to take not to turn left but to turn right as it were yeah i'm i'm thinking of a an organization that i know and i'm i'm wondering how much of an influence the organization has or could have on that where if there's an underlying culture within an organization that people potentially then, if they're part of it, they potentially default to some of those behaviors. Well, I think that was, you know, you know, I think your reader, uh, your listeners would be sitting there kind of thinking, well, you know, that's the banking Royal commission um, was heading, it headed in that direction, didn't it? You know, there was a culture in the organization that, that seemed to say that certain behavior was acceptable. And I think there are other examples, Perhaps you know, if you take bullying, for example, there are there are certain parts of an or there are certain cultures, certain behaviours in an organisation that seem to say that that is acceptable behaviour. Well, I wonder whether we can start exploring that and 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 seeing whether we can 
rec make some recommendations that organizations can put in place and say, well, if we do this, we will have less people. There's less chance of people slipping into that behavior. And I don't think that's been studied too much. And I don't think recommendations have been made enough. And I think the Institute, if anyone can, then we can be the Institute that um, makes those recommendations to people. Mm. Mm -hmm. oh, well, I'm uh, time frame. I'll put more pressure on you. Time frame for this this third book. I think by the back end of this year, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't quote me. <laughs> <laughs> it's recorded. You've said it. Therefore, it must be true. <laughs> so, are there in closing? Are there any sort of books, people, leaders, anyone that really stands out for you at the moment as someone demonstrating those seven attributes of the very successful leader? Um, I tend to, um, yeah, I do. Oh, what am I reading at the moment? I'm, I'm reading David Goggin's book at the moment. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he, he talks about, um, tenacity and, uh, you know, your eye on the prize and, you know, and being true to yourself and look at, I think, I think it's, I'm going to answer your question in a slightly different way. Um, I think it's too easy these days to look at kind of global leadership and, and you, you know, you can pick these biographies or autobiographies of political leaders or, but, but I actually, what I tend to celebrate a little bit more um, are local examples of leadership. And um, at the Institute, we've been on a bit of a campaign um, this year to stress local leadership and to look at good examples of local leadership. So I, rather than um, publicize books that, that I'm reading, what, what we tend to do is we tend to go along or I tend to go along to, you know, local talks by people. And I'm going to one tonight, for example, I'm going to um, uh, the alumni of Griffith university tonight, as it happens, they're one of our, they're one of our partners. And I've been invited to their alumni dinner this evening and they've got, a couple of their alumni speaking about management and leadership and, you know, what they've done in their careers. And I, I think, I think it's too easy to look globally. I, I quite like going along to local talks and, uh, and, and lo local examples of good management and leadership. And I would encourage people to, you know, go along to places and, and, and find local speakers who are giving examples of good local businesses that are doing stuff really, really well. So if people want to find out more about uh, you or the Institute, uh, where should they go? Well, um, I would encourage people to look at becoming a chartered manager. Um, that's a reflective pro process. It, it is in a sense, um, a combination. It combines all of these attributes and all of the skill skills. Um, I'd, I'd encourage people to go to our website, uh, managers and leaders or one I would, of course, encourage people to read the book, Leading Well, Seven Attributes of Very Successful Leaders, published by Major Street uh, down in Melbourne. Um, and of course, when people have chewed through that book, they can go to Leadership Matters, Seven Skills of Very Successful Leaders. And of course, we've, um, if you put those two together, I think you've got leadership pretty much covered. All right. Well, on that note, thank you so much, David, for being uh coming back to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate it. Uh, I'm sure we'll speak to you again soon about the dark side of leadership. <laughs> Thank you so much, Julian.
Well, that wraps up episode 96 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast, another author episode for you. I'd like to encourage you to head on over to the Synergen Group website and engage in the conversation with us. Tell us what you liked about the episode, tell us who you'd like us to interview, or tell us what sort of content you'd like us to deliver to. And if you are an iPhone user, I'm always going to suggest, can you please head on over to the Apple site, leave us a review, really does help us build awareness of the podcast. In next week's episode, we have another great author interview for you. I interview David Banger, author of Digital is Everyone's Business, a guide to transition. So it's another great author interview episode. And until then, love to hear what you think. Happy listening.